there's one thing you're likely to find all over the French countryside. The little villages with the castles, and you had really relaxed people living the old way. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Stay with us in the hour ahead as we learn what makes a region like Bordeaux different from Burgundy and why Alsace and Provence are so fun to visit. And in the chateau country of the Loire Valley, lavish riverside palaces, like the one they call the Ladies' Chateau, are a grand way to enjoy an elegant afternoon. From the beginning, it has been always the property of fantastic ladies. Or if your style is more earthy, legends explain the curious stone formations that guard the rustic landscape of Brittany. There was a, a druid who was chased out of his part of Brittany by the Roman legions. And just as he was chased into the sea, he turned around and swore at the Roman legions and turned them into stone. It's an hour exploring the most picturesque regions of France, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. While Paris is its dominant city, the rest of France makes it arguably the most diverse country in all of Europe. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, tour guides from France help us recognize the local character of different corners of their country. It's as big as Texas, but with regional variations that give each area a unique feel and flavor. In just a bit, we'll learn what massive stone circles can tell us about prehistoric times in Brittany. And in more recent centuries, the aristocracy left their own trail of stories and scandals among the elegant palaces of Chateau country in the Loire Valley. To help us explore France as a mosaic composed of many colorful parts, Virginie Moray joins us right now in our studio from her home base in Brittany. We're at 877-333-7425. Virginie, thank you for being here. Thank you. Bonjour. I was introducing France as big, but also varied. Definitely. Once you step out of Paris, no matter where you go, you're going to meet different people. I'm from a region of France, northwest of France, Brittany. And we are very, very different from people who live in southern France, Provence. Especially those two regions are very, very different for the people who actually conquered those places. We had the, the Greek who came to uh, southern France. Massilia, the city of Marseille, was uh, founded by the Greek a long time ago. So they brought their aspect of culture. And if you look at northwest France, Brittany, we had lots of people from Great Britain coming. So you definitely see different culture. Now, if you look at Alsace, you're going to obviously see an aspect of France that you don't see anywhere else, the German aspect. Close to the Pyrenees, we have Spain. So France is very varied, like you just said. And when you think about, the, if we can all envision the map of France, of Europe, and then we think of the countries all around, you do have that spillover. And just to review... You know, of course, Wales and Ireland and Scotland are Celtic. Cornwall and England Definitely. is Celtic. And you've got Celtic cousins right there in France. Definitely. And we actually speak a language, which is uh, Breton, which is not spoken a lot, not as much as, you know, Irish in Ireland or Welsh in mm -hmm. Wales, but it's very similar to Welsh. It's a language that before World War II, actually, many people mm -hmm. still spoke it. Wow. And, and even today, while the language may be gone, the cuisine and the traditions and, and the culture still has that Celtic flair. If you go over towards Germany, I mean, historically, Alsace, which is clearly in France now, has been disputed. Alsace is bordered by the Vosges Mountains and the Rhine River. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the Germans would like the Vosges Mountains to be the border, and the French would like the Rhine River to be the border. So what do you have in the middle? Well, you do have uh, a different place where they actually speak a different language, where the signs are different. They actually speak Alsatian. Most of the food for me when I go to Alsace is very different. It has nothing to do with what we can eat in Brittany. The signs on the streets are different too. So you get to practice your German when you're in Alsace. And this is a great mix because you understand the history. Germany and France, they have strong links nowadays. But you get to understand the disputes, the wars we had in between and how the, the place... Because for centuries, Alsace would go back and forth between France and Germany, depending on who won the last war. It did, definitely. And some people were enrolled in World War I in the German army, and actually they had <laughs> siblings in the French army. Whoa. And today, the consequences, you get this mix where you got your sauerkraut and your wurst and your sausages with fine French finishings. Definitely. Now, let's go south. And we, we th I think of Nice, you know, in the Côte d'Azur. Nice is a very French town to me, but actually, it's Italian, too. It's Italian. It was Italian until the late 1800s. And uh, the atmosphere is definitely different. So they actually had a vote when Italy was uniting, I think. And, exactly. and they asked the people on that area, OK, Italy's going to be a united country. This is 1870. And you people here uh, want to be with uh, France or Italy. And uh, they chose France. They chose France because France was a country that was, that was stronger at the time. So they right. had a choice between chaotic Italy or 
strong government friends, where would you go? Well, safety first, right? I think that's, that's probably us. Mm-hmm. If you're a risk-averse back in yes. the 1870s, you'd go with France. And then uh, if you move a little bit to the west along the Mediterranean coast, you find bullfights in France. The bullfighting in France is different than the bullfighting you have in Spain. In the, the fact that uh, in France, we actually do not kill the, the bull at the end. Sort of a cultural connection with Spain just Definitely south also. of the mountains. Mm-hmm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Virginie Moret. We're talking about France, her home country. We're going to talk a lot about the different regions, but let's just open it up here. I'm going to tell you the name of a region that we've all heard associated with the cuisine or something. But tell me just in one sentence how a French person would characterize the people of that region or the culture. When I say Bordeaux. Bordeaux, you would have uh, the little villages with the castles, and you would have really relaxed people living the old way. Traditional people. Traditional. Burgundy. Burgundy, very similar to Bordeaux, but enjoying a lot of, not heavy food, but the cold cuts, all of the culinary... uh, And Burgundy is the area closer to Switzerland. Switzerland, yes. Yeah, Loire. The castles of the Loire Valley. All right. And when I say Normandy, what do you think? Normandy, I think about the the creme, the beurre, all of those rich food that makes the French cuisine, tarte normande, Normandy pie, all of that rich food that we love to eat. I'm seeing a pattern here. I'm seeing a a relationship to (laughs) cuisine for all of these places. This is France. This is France. Provence. Provence, the smell. The smell and the colors, I would say. The colors, what colors? The colors. We, we had painters who are not French, like Van Gogh. That's mm-hmm. Van Gogh. He went down there for the light and yes. for the colors. And he definitely changed his way of painting by moving to southern France. When he was in Paris, it was darker colors. Kind of dark, you're right. And, and then, go to Provence, it's an explosion of life, of color. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then next to that, we have the Riviera, the Côte d'Azur. Côte d'Azur, which is the... It's the Florida of France, it's where you get Florida. all of the That's people on the beach. And the, and the, the resorts, the uh, Saint-Tropez. Definitely. Don't go there in the summer. No, it's, too, it's, too it's just a sunburned traffic jam Definitely. from my experience. Dordogne. Dordogne, relaxed. Yeah. Really relaxed places. British but, people love to go down to the Dordogne. Yes. Why do they like? Why do the British well, go to the Dordogne? Well, so they like it now, but we were in during the the Hundred Years' War. We. That's right. You they, were, they were here too for for different reasons. They were here for a long time. <laughs> they were not tourists. So they maybe that's in. a remnant of this uh, era. And we've talked about Alsace, which would be the Germanic part of France. So there's just a quick review. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Virginie Moret. We're talking about France. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four. And Monique's on the line in Boston, Massachusetts. Monique, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm interested in learning more about some of the regional contrast between Brittany and Normandy. And I went to France this past summer, and before we left, I had read that the ownership of Mont Saint-Michel had alternated between Brittany and Normandy at different times in history. And I was interested in hearing more about that and the differences between those two departments that as an American... They both seem coastal and sort of similar in some ways to me, but I know they're not. That's a very good point. And, Virginie, first of all, explain about Mont-Saint-Michel, because it is sort of on a piece of disputed land there. Definitely. And the next time you go, maybe you can take a shovel and dig the riverbed and make it change. Actually, the course of the, the river made the Mont-Saint-Michel go from one region to another. So at some point it was... In Brittany. Oh, so the way the river went... The Quino is, River. So the mm-hmm. river is the border between Brittany and Normandy, and the river would change because Mont Saint-Michel is in the mouth of the river. Mm-hmm. So whichever way the main body of the river goes, it'll be either Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy or Brittany. And Mont Saint-Michel, you've got to say, is the biggest touristic draw in either Normandy or Brittany. Definitely. Uh, so there, there you go. It's very important. And right now, Mont Saint-Michel happens to be by about 100 yards on the Normandy side. And it will stay for a long time now, I think. Because they've firmed that up, haven't they? <laughs> it is definitely so, Normandy. Uh, get used to it, Brittany. So, but then uh, Monique was asking about the cultural differences because Normandy was settled by the Vikings, the mm-hmm. Northmen, and it was from there where he had the Norman invasion of uh, England back in 1066. And Brittany, of course, is settled by Celtic people, like mm-hmm. the people of Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Uh, so they're both not pure French in a historical way, how would you describe Normandy compared to Brittany? Definitely. Uh, in Brittany, you're going to see a lot of uh, Celtic sites. We have famous one like Carnac. So if you want the Stonehenge kind mm-hmm. of prehistoric this wonders on the continent, you go to Brittany. You would go to Brittany. And if you want World War II attractions and memorials, you would go to Normandy. You would go to Normandy, if you want definitely. the Bayeux Tapestry, mm-hmm. and Bayeux is a beautiful town, you'd go in Mont-Saint-Michel. 
almost barely, you would go to <laughs> Normandy. Definitely. And uh, rural, the agriculture is really important in this part of France. We have the perfect weather, we have the rain, we have some sunshine too, obviously. But if you go to Brittany, they've done what we call the remembrement, which means that they've uh, removed the ditches to have big fields. So it was easier for the farmers to actually cultivate the land. When you go to Normandy, you see more trees, you see more ditches. So it does give another, a different aspect, I would say, more mm. like England maybe in Normandy. So Normandy is a little more quaint and pastoral, would yes, you say? Yes, I would say. All right. There you go, Monique. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Happy travels. So, Virginia, this is interesting to me because most of us travelers, we go to Paris, and that's our springboard for France. And you get this sense, like, we have in the United States the New Yorker map, where you've got New York and the Hudson River and then the Mississippi, and and then it's the end of it. In France, I I get a sense it's the same way. To the Parisian perspective, it's Paris and a bunch of farmers, you know. What is the Parisian view of the rest of France and the rest of France's view of Paris? Well, Paris is definitely seen as the New York of France, If you come from uh, Brittany, actually, right after World War II to work as a maid in France or even before World War II, you were seen as coming with your big sabots, which are the big uh, clawed shoes. And you were seen as, uh, you know, the rural person, not too educated. But actually, you know, big chunk of people who are called nowadays Parisians are actually from Brittany or other parts of, of France. So even though it's like New York in that case, it also is like New York in the fact that, you know, Parisians are people from different places of France, and that's what makes Paris such a nice city with nice people. And if you know where to go in Paris, you can eat the great cuisine of every region of France, obviously. Definitely. And the new change in the infrastructure makes uh, the beaches of Normandy an an easy holiday getaway. Uh, Hours away. You're just a couple hours from uh, Marseille with the TGV and to go to Brittany for a The train is very easy to take, and you can discover definitely don't just go just to Paris. No, it's like going to New York and saying, I've been to the U.S. That's all I've seen. No, you actually have to go other places. And it's very easy to do in uh, in France. The distances are pretty small. And Virginia, if we go to your region, Brittany, and you're our tour guide, what's the one experience you'd want to make sure we had so we appreciated the beauty of your corner of France? Well, we'll definitely have to uh, learning how to make a crepe because even though you can have crepe with Nutella in Paris, if you want to learn how to make them, you could actually go to the place where they originated. So Brittany, the place for the true crepe. Definitely. Virginie, thank you so much for a look and a better understanding of the many facets of France. Thank you. Kenavo, which is goodbye. Goodbye. In Breton. In Breton? Yes. Kenavo. Now I know a Breton word. <laughs> Kenavo. Kenavo. Douce France, cher pays de mon enfance, bercé de tendre insouciance, je t'ai gardé dans mon cœur. Up next, we explore the elegant chateau country in the Loire Valley, and then it's on to the flinty, rough hewn landscape of Brittany for world class sites in archaeology. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. And radio at ricksteves.com is our email address for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Oh, oui, je t'aime Et je te donne ce poème The Loire River Valley, a little south of Paris, was one of the poshest neighborhoods in France during the Renaissance. This means that today, you can spend days here admiring incredible architecture and gardens while learning about France's history and heritage. So, where do you start? 
Danielle Farineau joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves for a visitor's introduction to the chateau country of the Loire Valley. Bonjour, Danielle. Hello. Danielle, you, you live in Paris, but you also live near the Loire Valley, a little bit south of the Loire. Yes, exactly. Why would somebody want to live in the Loire area when you could live in a great city like Paris also? Well, um, the Loire Valley is a very pleasant area to live. It's very quiet, of course, for those who like discotheques and okay, don't go to the Loire for the discotheques activities. No, even though there are some big cities that afford all sort of activities of that type, but uh, I would say that most people would go to the Loire Valley for the beauty of the area, very fresh air, and to get away from the intensity of Paris. Exactly. And maybe that was the same reason some of the nobility and royalty went exactly. there to build their chateau. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly what you say. Uh, the kings of France were hunters, first of all. Right. So they needed those big space for hunting. And the Loire Valley is the perfect place. Perfect yes. place for hunting. Yes. For Louis, it took a little while to go from Paris to the Loire Valley. How, now today, how yeah. long does it take to go? Today, if you go with your car, it would take you... Three hours. And if you go by TGV, fast train? You can go to the big city of Tours within right. one and a half hour. So you can leave Paris and in one and a half hour be in Tours, T-O-U-R-S. Mm-hmm. And from there, Tours is on the Loire. And then the beautiful smaller towns are very close by. You can connect by bus, I suppose. Yes. If, if somebody is thinking about the most exciting single day to enjoy a representative look at the Loire Valley, mm-hmm. what are the famous first things to see? for a a beautiful day on the Loire? A beautiful day in the Loire, if you are going by train, you just spend your day in the city of Tours, Ah. for instance, Uh because Tours offers everything you can dream of. Okay. It's a beautiful city located between the Loire River and the next big river, which is called the Cher River. The Cher, okay. In between, you have the city of Tours, like a very lazy sort of beauty between those two rivers. You see the beauty of the Loire. If you walk a bit further, you see the beauty of the Cher. In between, you have all those beautiful buildings, flowers everywhere. And and we should mention a lot of the beauty of the Loire is not on the Loire, but it's also on the little rivers nearby. Exactly. Actually, uh, la Loire is the big river of France. It's 1,000 kilometers long. And this part of the river we are talking about is like the last part before the ocean. Okay. It covers an area of about 300 kilometers. Mm-hmm. That would be about 250 miles, right? I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about traveling in the Loire. We're joined by Danielle Ferreno, a tour guide from the Loire area. And Danielle, we can enjoy the beautiful city of Tours. Mm-hmm. Again, T-O-U-R-S. Uh, yes. But if you want to use that as a springboard and actually see some chateaux, what would be the, the best two or three chateaux, and how would you describe them? If you were staying in Tours, in a few minutes, I would say, half an hour, mm-hmm. you could go to Langeais, yeah. you could go to Chenonceau, even though Chenonceau is a little bit further, and it's not really on the Loire, it's on an attributary to the Loire, it's called the Cher. Okay, C-H-E-R. And Chenonceau is the symbol of the beautiful chateaus of the Loire. If you had a book about the Loire, yeah. on the cover of the book would be a photograph of probably, Chenonceau. Probably, probably. Yes, yeah. yes. It's really the symbol uh, of, of the elegance of that architecture. I think it sort of dances with little arches going over the river in the sleepy Cher River instead of the bigger Loire River. Yes. It's called the Lady Chateau. Why is yes. Chenonceau called the Lady's Chateau? It's called the Lady's Chateau because it happened that from the beginning of this place, from the beginning of the construction, it has been always the property of fantastic ladies. You know, the first one, Catherine Brissonnet, her husband was a tax collector of the king. So he was always with the king. She was there taking care of the construction, choosing the people, the artists who were working there. And then, of course, along the years, the other very famous one has been one of the king of France mistress, the lovely Diana. Diana de Poitiers, Mm -hmm. Diane de Poitiers, yes. Then when the king died and she was not the queen anymore, the chateau belonged to the real queen, Catherine de Medici. Catherine de Medici, okay. Catherine de Medici, another very strong personality, right? Catherine de Medici gave this property to one of her daughter-in-law, 
uh, this lady was called Louise, so she'll be another one of those famous ladies. And it goes on and on till up to now. Whoa. So maybe for these kings who are so full of power and ambition, maybe they had uh, strong women and they just wanted to distract the women by giving them a nice chateau to take care of. I think they were. They wanted to be nice with They them. wanted to be nice. Oh, yeah. that's good. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And when you go today, it has a sort of a feminine touch. Oh, it's absolutely. It's very elegant. Really des- very Describe elegant. the beautiful court, that the, the long hall that goes literally over the river. It used to be a bridge, okay. this long hall, actually. Right. The first part is really the, the biggest part of the castle is what you see when you are walking towards the castle. Okay, On the riverbank. On the riverbank. Then Diana of Poitiers thought that it would be easier to go to the other side of the river, to the other side of the property, because this is where they were hunting, of course. Oh, yeah. It would be easier if there was a bridge. So she ordered people to build that elegant bridge on the river share. And then when she was not the mistress anymore, when the queen, Catherine de Medici, took that property for her, she decided that she needed more space. And she thought that would be a good idea to enjoy, to take advantage of this fantastic location. So she decided to build an extra part of the building above that bridge. And that's how she got that fantastic gallery. So the the mistress of the king had a bridge going across the river. Hey, let's cover it up and make it an extension of the palace. And now we can have more people over for a party. Yes. (laughs) Then it became a sort of tradition. Kings and wanted to have this always a, a something spectacle. spectacular like this. Yes. And when you go to a place like Chenonceau, this beautiful chateau, you get an audio tour. If you're lucky mm-hmm. to have a guide like you, well, you have a live guide, but most of the tourists that come there, included, I believe, with the admission, is a beautiful audio tour. Yes, at the very entrance to the and property. And then every room is explained in English exactly. beautifully. Now, this was Chenonceau. Chenonceau. That was the elegant chateau, the big, grandiose chateau. Also very important, Chambord. Chambord. Chambord is different. Chambord was built for a young man, uh, the king Francis I. Oh, and he was like the ultimate king, the Renaissance king. Uh, absolutely. He was the handsome young man of his time. He was 20 years old when he became king in 1515. He had already met Leonardo da Vinci. He was impressed by this master, by this man. He invited him in France, and with Leonardo's advisors, probably, he decided to build something really fantastic that was like a dream, the dream of a young, maybe one of the last knights of the Middle Ages. He ordered the construction of something really big. And here is Chambord, actually... Leonardo da Vinci never saw Chambord because he died in 1519. So, ah, so he never saw it. He never saw but it. But d- he designed the uh, the fascinating uh, he, interlocking stairway, exactly. the double helix it's called. Yes, yes. He probably designed this plan. When you go, it is like you think you could put 10 castles inside this castle. Yes. It's 440 rooms. You stand at the far end of the garden and it's just like, it's like a mountain. Yes. And it's fascinating to me, Danielle, that the lady of the court would go to the rooftop hmm? and watch the men hunting. Can you describe yes. how that hunting spectacle worked for the for the fancy uh, nobles and the, and the royalty? Well, first of all, they would start with those fantastic horses, be dressed with incredible outfits and, and pearls and all sorts of jewels. They, they were dressed in a way that we, we can hardly imagine, and then they would go for hunting. The men would dress with all the pearls and the jewels? Of course. So you'd dress up to go hunting. And the women with their pearls and jewels would be up on top of the roof clapping for them and drinking tea and there's Mm, my man. (laughs) At that time, I don't think they were drinking tea. Okay. But a part of the hunting party would be to impress the girls. Okay. Yeah. So they had the best horses, the nicest way to ride a horse and so on. And a hunting party could last three days. Three days. And the grounds were big enough. Oh, of course. Yes. And uh, sometimes they would even stay overnight because they were after a deer or they were after a wild boar or whatever. It was really something. And it was like the the continuation of an old tradition that was uh, the necessary 
activity to feed the people. So that sort of goes way, way back to the clans and the yes. tribes when the leader would uh, would keep the people with meat and protected from the wild beast and so on. Yeah. In the case of Francis, he was such an athlete. He was quite an athlete, yeah. He was an athlete, so he would be able to kill a bear or a wild oh, bear. Oh, he's there. Yeah. The king I would like, yeah. for sure, Francois Premier. Yeah. Leonardo chose to live in his court. Mm-hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Danielle Ferrinou, and we're talking about the Loire Valley. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com, and Mary Jane from Santa Ynez, California, has emailed us, and she writes... We were driving through the Loire Valley on our way to the Chambord Palace, and we got as lost as we could on purpose, just to have a spontaneous day. We found wonderful little farm communities that looked like an unoccupied three-story chateau on a lovely estate. We walked around the area and enjoyed meeting the wonderful local people. We found that not caring where you're going in the Loire Valley presented many interesting opportunities that we would not have had if we just followed a set route connecting famous castles together. Of course, they eventually did see the the big castles, but the highlight of their trip was just visiting people in villages and and getting lost. Yes, of course. The villages uh, are all authentic. What is interesting also about this area is the way the houses were built. In this area, they are lucky enough to have this type of stone, which is a sort of white limestone. It comes from the cliff along the Mm -hmm. valley of the river. From centuries and centuries, men have been using those stones. So it's it's local, it's affordable, it's it's easy to quarry. And it's white. And it's white. It's white. And it it becomes whiter and whiter with the time. So it gives those villages a, a charm because it's so different. Houses are small and white and covered with a gray slate roof. It's unique. And with the flowers, you know, it makes a... One of Lots my of contrast. One, one of my favorite things is Amboise is a good home mm. base when you're in the Loire. Yes. Amboise has a beautiful chateau, and it happens to have the home of, as you know, Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo. And you walk through these neighborhoods with this beautiful white stone, and you also pass some troglodyte homes, people living in the mountain, in the cave. Mm-hmm. The caves uh, are naturally uh, holes in the cliff, mm-hmm. but they, they can be also the result of those quarries that have been used oh, okay. so you could just move for in. centuries and centuries, and especially by the Romans. This part was part of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. of course. The Romans needed mass and mass need stones, of yeah. stones to build their roads, their okay. bridges, and so on. So they got those huge holes in the cliffs. So yeah. those holes became homes for people, the troglodyte homes. And the troglodyte can be warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Exactly. Natural uh, insulation. perfect sellers. Oh, perfect sellers for the local wine. Because also the Loire Valley is one of the most important wine country in France. And another little industry or agriculture, it's the culture of the mushrooms. I heard you can actually visit a a cave with mushrooms. Yes. Mushroom in France is a champignon. Yeah. So... A place where you grow the champignon is a champignonnière. Okay, so you can visit your champignonnière in the Loire Valley. Exactly, (laughs) yes. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Danielle Ferrenou. We're talking about the wonders of the Loire Valley. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Nicole's on the line in Dallas, Texas. Nicole, thanks for your call. Oh, hi there. Uh, I had... A beautiful experience in the Loire Valley a few years ago, sort of the back roads. My husband and I spent 10 days driving from Saint-Benoît all the way to Nantes. And we stayed mostly in accommodations that we found on Gite de France website. So we stayed in very small B&Bs, families, people that were making their living from the lands, eating local foods, local wine. Um, we made sure that each opportunity we had to have the table d'hôte with the host dinner was just a really special part of the trip, a great way to get to know the local people. So now, we, is table d'hôte, does that mean the dinner that they would provide? Yes, it's fantastic. I mean, one of the place we stayed in Saint-Benoît, literally we had river trout that her neighbor oh. had caught. Now, for Nicole, dinner. for our listeners, uh, you mentioned you were staying in the GITE system, G-I-T-E-S, and this is unique to France, and it is just a beautiful opportunity for travelers like you who want to get more by spending less and connecting with salt-of-the-earth people out in the countryside to become a temporary local. Nicole, what was your favorite uh, castle experience while you were in the Loire? 
I have to say, Shinoso, not only because it's so beautiful, but we happen to be there in the winter, and it literally snowed just a little bit every single day of our trip. And so I have a great picture of Shinoso with snow falling, and so I forever think of it as Shinon Snow now. <laughs> Shinon Snow. I like that. Well, thank you, Nicole, for your call. You're welcome. Have a good day. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been speaking with Danielle Ferrenu about the Chateau country of France. And, Danielle, it's interesting for me because you live in Paris, which is the Manhattan of France, really, but you also seem to be very charmed by living more in the peaceful countryside. If you were a visitor, or if you had a visitor in the Loire Valley and you wanted to give them a very restful experience in the Loire Valley, what would be the most beautiful way to, to truly recharge and relax and savor the, the good life of the Loire? You could go in a, one of the villages, Montsoreau, for instance. Mm-hmm. Montsoreau is a fantastic town along the river where you see the sand and you see the Loire and you see people going fishing. They have those special type of uh, flat-bottom boats that are built the way they were built hundreds of years ago, the gabar going the gabar, on the Loire. The, they're unique for the Loire industry in the old days. Yes, exactly. And also one thing maybe we should mention is that in the past, the Loire was navigable, mm-hmm. which means all those kings, all those members of the nobility who wanted to be along the Loire with the king for various reasons, they were coming mostly by boat. They right. had those fantastic equipage on those boats and the big trunks and all that, and including the horses. So nowadays, you go to Montsoreau, you see that they have recreated this life, going fishing uh, with a gabar, uh, having a drink, looking at the people. So find a small going. town. It could be one of many towns. Stay in a chambre d'hôte. Exactly. A bed and breakfast yes. and become a temporary local person. Yes, and just look at those sites. You don't have necessarily mm-hmm. to visit inside all those mm-hmm. chateaux. There are so many of them. Of course, you would like to see all of them, but if you just look at them from outside, they are all located in fantastic places above that's, the hill, etc. That's the charm of the Loire Valley. And see maybe one or two vineyards and figure out a little place to taste that good wine of the Loire. And I want to visit a champignon. Uh, a champignonier. Yeah. Yes. The mushroom cave. What is yes. the mushroom cave called again? Champignonière. Another dimension of the Loire Valley. Yes. Danielle Ferrenu, merci bien. You're welcome. From the mansions of high society, our next stop is among the weathered stones and boulders of Brittany in the northwest of France. That region's extensive prehistoric sites have their own stories to tell, and we'll hear about that next on Travel with Rick Steves. France has an embarrassment of riches when it comes to ornate palaces and gilded elegance. It also has some of the most impressive evidence of prehistoric people that you can find anywhere. Mark Seymour has been with us previously on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the ancient stone circles in England. He's back with us today to explain what the stones have to tell us in Brittany. That's the weather-beaten Celtic region of northwest France where Mark lives now. Mark, good to have you back. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Now, Mark, if you're looking just for the best place for ancient stones, you know, Stonehenge kind of stuff, where in Europe do you go and why? Personal favorite has got to be Brittany. Um, there are so many of them in the landscape. The west tip of France. Northwest tip of France, yes. And these are Western Celtic people, people, like historically the people in southwest England. 
in the Welsh and the Irish. It's populated by people that claim a a Celtic ancestry and Celtic lineage, yes. So you're going to Brittany then, and and what's the word you look for uh, on the map? Where are we going for these stones mostly? Um, the biggest, uh, I mean, the icon of stone searchers would be Karnak in, in southern Brittany. C-A-R-N-A-C. N-A-C. Karnak. It's a World Heritage Sites, and there are in excess of 4,000 standing stones. So you go to Karnak and have a, get, pick up a guidebook or just go to the local tourist information office, hire a local tour or something, and you can see all the Stonehenge kind of stuff you want in France. In, in France, yes. Now, yeah. just a glossary, Mark. Uh, we always hear the word megalith. What is that? A megalith has a dual meaning. It's basically a single standing stone. It literally be big stone, megalith. Big stone, big stone. All right, and dolmen? Uh, dolmen is uh, it's a Breton word, and it basically means a table. So this would ah, be so a, it's a standing of stone with something on the top of it, with a big stone on top of it. Yes, yeah. normally th- at least three pillars, pillar Good. stones. So maybe camp. like a stool with with two big yes, stones exactly. and, and a table on top. Would that normally be some kind of a tomb, marking a tomb or a, a holy spot? Or it, what? it would have been. Many of them actually, uh, in prehistory, when they were first erected, they would have been burial sites and right. they would have been enclosed. Um, it's just that oh, a yeah. lot of the stones ah, have been so, stripped. Yeah. So in Western Ireland, there's a, a famous dolmen. It just looks like somebody set up a kind of a tripod there, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it was actually underground until the erosion came and, and exposed it. That's right. I mean, three-legged mushrooms covered in soil, probably chalk, uh, sometimes clay, allowing the grass to grow back over them. Another word we uh, encounter a lot is menhir, M-E-N-H-I-R. What is that? Uh, again, a menhir is a single standing stone. So a menhir is a megalith. Yes. Now, stone circles, there must be a hundred of them probably all over Europe, and if you know where to look. Um, you'll find more stone circles in Britain than you will other, in other areas in Europe. So um, we know Stonehenge, and a lot of people know Avebury, but Avebury. really, there, there's a lot of obscure ones. You're from uh, Dartmoor. One of yes, my favorite ones yes. is at Gidley. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. Oh. Lovely, lovely, and ancient. Ancients. Man, you know, you go to Stonehenge, you got port you know, what we'd call a, a port potties and you got tour buses, and you got barbed wire, and you got the information center, yeah. but you go hiking across Dartmoor more, you find your own private stone you, circle. You will trip over them. I think the numbers taken are throughout the British Isles as a whole, there are approximately 1,300 stone circles. Whoa. Um, that's not including many years or dolmens or megaliths. Right. That's just stone circles. Now, how old is all this stuff? Approximately, depending on which part of Europe we're talking about, approximately 10,000 years B.C. 10,000 B.C. Yeah. And uh, Stonehenge, for instance, would have gone back uh, how far B.C.? Uh, Stonehenge would be approximately thirty-five to 4,500 B.C. So older than the first pyramids. The first yes, pyramids absolutely. were 5,000 years ago, absolutely. 3,000 B.C. And many of the stone circles and, and, and uh, megalithic remains in Brittany are actually older than many of those found in Britain. Oh, is that right? Yep. Huh. Yeah, approximately 1,000, 1,500 years difference for some of the cultures. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about prehistory in Europe, and we're joined by Mark Seymour, who is a young man surrounded by old stuff in Brittany and in <laughs> South England. Mark, when you're thinking about uh, all this prehistoric stonework, you got these underground passage graves and, and long lines of stones, aligned rocks. Talk a little bit about that. They're marvelous. Again, they, you can find them all over Europe, particularly in the northwestern coastline of Europe in wild landscapes. Um, Passage graves uh, come under various names. Uh, burial mounds, they are basically. What is a passage grave? What, why why um, passage? If you can imagine, say, 20, 30, 40, 50 standing stones shoulder to shoulder with each other and then capped with other stones. Oh, so it's a long line of stones that creates a passage, like That's a tunnel. right, with a roof of stones. Oh, and okay. then that subsequently would be covered in soil and turf or chalk. And then you'd find, if you knew where to look, or once upon a time there were human ashes there? Yep, absolutely. Human remains are still being found today in many of them. Now, aligned rocks. If you took an airplane over certain parts of Britain, and I imagine Brittany, you could see patterns. Yeah, um, in fact, it's quite a puzzle. Uh, we don't understand. Karnak's a great example because there are three great alignments in Karnak. Karnak that, in Brittany. That's where we have those 4,000 stones. Um, oh, okay. 3,700 last count, but increasing every year. So the, I understand there's like uh, the line of stones would be a, a mile long every 20 feet. It, almost from there, it would look like the lights on a runway strip at yeah, an airport. Yeah, it's an amazing sight. And the, the three alignments, they're end to end. So you actually have huh. three oh. groups of stones. Some of the myths and legends attached to them are amazing. Uh, one and of it the, goes one, back 8,000 years. Years. Yeah, yeah. So what's one yeah. of the legends? It's, it's lovely, actually. It's, uh, there was a, a druid who was chased out of his part of Brittany by the Roman legions. And just as he was chased into the sea, he turned around and basically um, swore at the Roman legions and turned them into stone. Okay. And of course, then you have those three Roman legions standing in line nose to nose in a place called Karnak. And then you got these boring archaeologists that are going to give you an actual <laughs> uh, factual rundown on it. Uh, who did these things? What, who were these people that made this amazing stuff? That, well, the, 
I'm a British person. I, I'm part of Great Britain, but I live in Brittany. And those two names are synonymous with what the Romans called the people who lived in these areas when Roman invaded what was Gaul and the British Isles. Oh, okay. So uh, 2,000 years the ago, Britons. these are the people that were there before the Romans. Yeah, they called us the Bretons. They weren't the people Bretons. who erected the stones. No. Um, they were the people who were settling in those areas where the stones were to be found. Okay, but who actually erected them? Because it, you had to have your act together to move these big stones. And, yeah. and the, you know, the stones we see at Stonehenge, they came from southern Wales, I believe. Yes, that's right. Yes, And these did, are yes. many tons each. Yes, the Blue Sarsons came from Wales. Yes, yes, they are. Uh, they Do we know much about these people? We know very, very little. Um, obviously prehistory, so nothing was written down about right. them. And archaeologists are struggling to ascertain whom they were and also where they came from. You know, I was so into the whole wonder of these people. When I was down in southern France uh, visiting Lescaux and all mm. of the great prehistoric cave paintings there, which go back to this period or even older, I remember going into the one of these caves and the ceiling was just covered with paintings, uh, very crude stick figures. But, yes, but And our guide said, we're gazing at the Sistine Chapel of the prehistoric world. And I thought, these guys are prehistory. I've dedicated my studies to history and gaining an appreciation yes. of the Renaissance and Baroque. But I really did gain a respect for the wonder of these people who we will never understand. Yes, yes, yes. That's what dumbfounds me. Absolutely. You visit places like Avebury, you visit places like Calanish in the Western Isles of Scotland. Um, you, there are some staggering places. Why did these people... How many of these people were there doing and this? And we'll never have answers, but no. we will gain a wonder yes. that there was yes. real people doing yes. real things back when, when they didn't have iPods. But they knew what the stars were telling them because these things were done in alignment with the stars to help them know when to plant, when to harvest, when to party. Yeah, with stone circles, that's that's definite. Um, right. There are various alignments which are very, very accurate, which can be found within stone circles. Um, with stone alignments, that's more of a puzzle. Um, uh -huh. The alignments themselves don't actually align with anything, astrologically speaking. Now, in modern times, we can look at this scientifically, but in the old days, it must have blown people away. It must have been rich uh, opportunity for fantastic legends and stories oh, as they yes. wondered who the heck built these things and what did it mean? Yes, and of course, I mean, with the onset of Christianity in, in, in Europe, I mean, you, you have church leaders who are trying to integrate these old pagan beliefs and myths and legends oh, yeah. into Christianity. And uh, wherever you go, both in, in, certainly in the southwest of England, Wales, uh, Scotland, and of course, Brittany, you find these old traces of pagan myths and legends right. supplanted with uh, an element of Christianity. And I think it's interesting, all over Britain, who's the um, Saint Michael? He's the guy mm -hmm. that is the sort of saint that beats down all the pagan That's kind right. of stuff. That's right. So if you have a prehistoric holy site and you're going to come in there as a Christian, you're going to put a church right on top of that site. Furthermore, it's going to be a church dedicated to Saint Michael. Yep. And what's more, you'll take any stones you might find in that area and you'll turn those into foundation stones for the church and uh, cut Wow. A, a stone cross wow. out of it, put it on top of the church huh. or at the entrance of the village. So you could derive, if you found some humble little church to St. Michael that was built who knows when, you know, mm -hmm. you can derive it was built because this is an antidote to the pagan yep. importance was, that was right in was that spot. Built, it was built on a pagan spot. You yep. dig under a church dedicated to St. Michael, you're going to find some... Something very interesting, something very I hope. Interesting. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark Seymour about prehistoric stones. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And Bill's on the line in Livermore, California. Bill, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. This is Bill, and uh, hi, Mark. Um, I wanted to share with you a couple other sites there. We were in Brittany for the month of September back in 2011. And besides going down uh, to Karnak, and, and of course down in that area there's um, other interesting sites, but one of the places that... We enjoyed up north. We were staying just south of Brest on the canal. There's a site, the Carn de Brenes, which they claim to be one of the largest in all of Europe and one of the oldest. And uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's got like about 11 burial chambers, sits mm -hmm. on top of a, a mound overlooking the sea and the inlet. It's quite amazing and was covered over for many years. And uh, then they started using it as a quarry before they really discovered that uh, oh. it was a significant site. Well, that's tragic if they start coring that stuff before they realize it's 20,000 years old or 10,000 years old. Well, once they discovered it, they, they put it in junction, but the man who was coring it continued and actually apparently got arrested and, uh, uh, <laughs> for violating this site. Ah. Um, and uh, that, that was fairly recently, too, in our history, wasn't it? it was, I think yes. it was in the 60s that uh, yes. the injunction yeah. was put in. Yeah, oh. yeah. Because it yeah. goes back to, like they say, about 4,500 B.C. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and then the other thing I was going to mention, at Karnak, the, uh, 
the interpretive center is very good because it, it actually points out the fact that because of the ice age back when these, when we look at it now and we look out and see the sea in places like there's the, I'm not too good with these French pronunciations, but Lac Maricuer, which is uh, yeah. right yeah. near the water, and then there's uh, Gravinus, which is on an island. Both of those at one point were, uh, the sea wasn't there. There were streams and things, but they were able to connect, and there's actually rocks, huge stones that they repurposed, and part of it they used the Lac Maricuer in their big domed rock dome, and then another part was used in Gravinus. So it's, uh, you enjoyed your trip, didn't you? How long were oh, you Oh, absolutely, person? absolutely. We were there for a month. I actually took three different groups of our friends to these sites, and they wow. just, mm. it, it, it reminds me a little like going into St. Peter's every time we'd go to Karnak, everybody's jaw would just drop, <laughs> and you know, it's, wow. just, it's an outdoor experience, but it's it's quite amazing. The, the one spot you mentioned at the beginning there was uh, uh, Barney, and uh, it is the most incredible stone cairn. It's made of red, uh, hard uh, limestone, very, almost akin to granite, and it's right on the westernmost tip of uh, Brittany. Yeah. What, uh, what is a cairn? You said a cairn? A cairn is uh, another megalithic structure. It's a pile of stones. I hate to put it that way, but it's a, a number of burial chambers. C-A-I-R-N. Oh, uh, creating a, like a stone igloo or something? Like a huge stone igloo. Because you see those in... Uh, Outside of Dublin, there's the famous one. Yeah. Yes, and this this one um, is approximately 200 feet in length and wow. 60 feet high. It's it's like a small pyramid. If you can think ways. of a pyramid or an igloo with one entrance, and then one day out of the year, the sun shines through that entrance and illuminates the chamber right in the middle of it all. That's that's the the mastery they have of all of this celestial stuff. I don't know if that one you're talking about does, but the one in Dublin. This does. one doesn't. The one you're talking about, Newgrange. Newgrange, yes. yeah. amazing, yeah. staggering. Yeah. Yes. So, Bill, why not many? people go to Brittany, and you you went there for a month, and you took your friends, and sounds like you had a great time. Why did you go to Brittany? Well, if, partly, when I've been in Ireland, my family on my father's side is Irish, and when I went to Ireland, my last name is Britton, but it's B-R-I-T-T-O-N, and I read a book there, and it said, well, that name may come from the Celts who then went back to Brittany, which they did, to kind of flee the Anglo-Saxons and um, that it may come to the people that then came back to Ireland and they came from Breton. There you go. And so I was kind of interested in exploring. I actually even saw, I didn't see anything in the phone book, but I did see a utility vehicle with my last name on it driving (laughs) along the freeway. Great. Hey, Bill, we got to run. Thanks for your call. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye Bye. And Rebecca's on the line in Granbury, Texas. Rebecca, thanks for your call. Thanks for having me, Rick and Mark. Um, my husband and I will be traveling near Karnak at the end of September, and I was wondering if there are other sites that you could recommend us visiting. And if so, do we have to have any reservations in advance, or can you see them the day of? No, no, no. I mean, these are all outdoor sites. Uh, they're part of the landscape. No booking, no reservations, no tickets. Well, that's a relief when you've been in Paris <laughs> or something, and yeah. you go out to Brittany. You'll never, I doubt if you'll ever encounter any crowd problems in Brittany. Just bring an umbrella, I guess. That's the only... Uh... I'll also say, I mean, I, I do have my favorite. I've got uh, Saint-Just, which is uh, just north of a small town called Redon. It's about a half an hour, 35 minutes from Karnak itself. Saint-Just. Saint-Just, J-U-S-T. Saint-Just, basically. Saint-Just. And why uh, is that your favorite? Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's to me, it's a stonemason's uh, sample yard. If you can imagine uh, some ancient stonemason creating these many years and standing oh. stones 6,000 years ago, this guy decided he was going to put his wares out on display and sell them. And, and it's uh, several alignments of stones are there, but they're made of everything from white quartz to red granite um, and everything in between. And it's quite staggering to see them on, on, on this ridge stretching off into the distance. Now, Mark, if somebody's going to spend a week looking around Brittany and they want two or three towns to make as a home base, which couple of towns would make the most interesting and enjoyable home base? Great question. Two, I'll give you right away. There's one called, uh, we, we pronounce it Jocelyn, um, J-O-S-S-E-L-I-N. It's mm-hmm. fairly central in Brittany, in the in- hinterland. A beautiful medieval town in its own right, but surrounded by many of these stones. Right. Um, another one is a smaller, even more attractive village called Rochefort-en-Terre, um, R-O-C-H-E-F-O-R-T hyphen E-N hyphen T-E-R-R-E. Rochefort-en-Terre. Uh, little hillside town, again, 
beautifully medieval in, in essence, but surrounded by these stones. And just like when I'm tooling around Normandy, looking at different uh, Normandy landing sites or whatever, or tooling around the Loire, looking at Chateau, I would imagine when you're in Brittany, it's nice to have the mobility a car provides. Yes. So you can get out and see all of these yes. things. You, you would definitely need a vehicle, your own vehicle, or rent a cottage or stay in a hotel for yes. several days and get a bike. You, they're easy enough to access. Rebecca, I hope that gives you some good ideas. It does. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call. Happy travels. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been discussing prehistoric Europe, specifically in Brittany, with Mark Seymour. Mark, thanks a lot. Thank you. You can share your travel impressions and memories with us in the form of a haiku poem. There's a link to send us your original haiku in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here are a few great ones that we recently got that we think you might enjoy. Here's what our listeners are writing about their travel memories in the form of a haiku poem. Jessica Bain from New York City sends us this haiku about a simple memory she carries with her from a visit to southern France. Sweet burgundy pearl, humble onion so sublime, only in Provence. Vanessa Zimmer Powell from Houston writes this about her experience at the popular Roman mineral water pools in western Turkey. Pamukkale pools, cotton castle, ancient cliffs, soft blue goddess gifts. Brian Alcorn of Thousand Oaks, California sends us this memory that lingers from a road trip he took as a kid along California's Big Sur. Heaven's canopy, beneath boughs of oak and pine, the soil tinted green. And Alan Powell from Nashville shares this poetic memory from his travels. We've arrived, she spoke softly in my tired ears. It's time to explore. Summarize a moment or a memory from your travels in three lines of five syllables, seven syllables, and five syllables each. You'll find a link to send us your original travel haiku in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to Gretchen Straug for reading today's travel haiku. Our technical team includes Andrew Wakeling, Jonathan Lee, Chris Luchik, and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more online in the radio department at ricksteves.com. That's where you can listen again to any week's show, post your comments on what you hear, and send us your own original travel haiku or a short hometown brag that we might read someday on the air. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for France, Paris, Provence and the Riviera, and Rick's French phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for France and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.